Welcome to the Marcus Oldham College Ag Talk podcast. This series of podcasts focuses on the business management of Australian farms. G'day, my name is David Cornish. I am the director for the Centre for the Study of Agribusiness at Marcus Oldham College, an independent tertiary institution that has been producing the next generation of Australian farm managers for over 50 years. The focus of the podcast is to look at the question of what makes a farmer successful. Is it just luck or do good farmers make their own luck through hard work and utilising good business decision-making processes? I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome to podcast number 11, where we will continue our exploration of commodity prices. For this podcast, I want to focus on meat and wool. And I'm joined by Robert Herman, Managing Director of Mercado, a specialist agricultural advisory with its focus on the financial enhancement of primary producers and price risk management. Welcome, Robert, how are you? I'm very good, David. Thanks for having me along. So, so Robert, how I'd like to play today is, is, I think sometimes we get caught in the detail. I wanna take a step back and just think about some of the long-term trends that you're seeing within, let's start off with the, the meat markets, especially as um, obviously beef and lamb and obviously mutton as well, but just think about what are some of the long-term impacts that we're seeing in the market per se? You know, what's happening in the export market, supply market, all those type of uh, you know, mega trends, if we want to call them those. Yep, that's a good point. A good place to start, David. And um, I think stepping back is also a good idea. And so having spoken to farmers for a long time, we, we get to understand, you know, their view on, on what's ahead. And generally, farmers are quite conservative in talking about the outlook, you know, they don't like to talk it up all that much. It's just, a, a, I guess it's a safety mechanism. You don't want to get your, uh, get ahead of yourself. But I recall back, oh, it might be 15 years ago, when they, we first heard about this discussion and it, and it was along the lines of people talking about the mining boom turning into the dining boom. And we know what happened to mining in Australia and how the boom affected the Australian economy and and even cushioned us from the GST implications. But when we talked about it moving on to a dining boom, um, farmers said, oh yeah, look, there'll be something that'll go wrong. There's always something that interrupts, you know, it sounds good, we've been hearing this for a long time. You know what it's like, David, that, um, you know, there's always something on the horizon. Well, look, the reality is, if we're talking about meats, the reality is that we're now seeing prices that are reflecting a dining boom. and they never happen overnight. They, you know, when people first said, oh, we've had a mining boom, therefore the Chinese economy has, has grown on the back of mining. Uh, now they'll start dining. It doesn't happen overnight, but that progression is, is undeniable. And it's translated into demand for our product. Um, and, and there's a whole lot of underlying things in that, in that context but it's also clearly translated into price for our meat products, our red meat proteins. So let, let, let's just think about that. So when we're talking about the dining boom, there's obviously factors in play that has resulted in, as you say, increased demand for our products. What are those factors that we're looking at? Well, to have a dining boom, you need to have wealth. People need to have, need to have wealth because we know in countries that don't have wealth, third world countries, the, the consumption of red meat protein is almost non-existent. It's almost completely, you know, grain-based diets. And, and Asia was like that for a long time. It was a grain-based diet. 
so when the when the wealth came and in and coincidentally Australia was just in this fortune position where we were able to contribute to that wealth by providing mining materials. So the mining materials got the economies of, of China. We just want to, I mean, China's a great, it's not the be all and end all, but it's a great one to focus on because everyone understands. When that economy started to improve, it was on the back of manufacturing. And to have manufacturing, you need, uh, you need population. Well, there's no shortage of population, but you also need raw materials. And so we were able to contribute to that. Now, the extrapolation of that manufacturing activity is that you create wealth for the population. And that wealth for the population translates into a lot of things. But one of the things we know it does, as your disposable income increases in those countries, the consumption of fats, proteins, and carbohydrates also increases. It increases exponentially. And it's not at a high income level. It's sort of around the $10,000 US is where it starts to kick in. And funnily enough, it plateaus and flattens out at around 40,000 US. So if a country's in that space, they're consuming rapidly more fats, proteins, and carbohydrates, you know, translate that into red meat. And, uh, and when you've got large populations, that really ramps up the demand. So if we're looking at that, you know, we could say for, the, for, for grain, for instance, or rice or carbohydrate market, the increase in those in that demand would probably be less than what we've seen in the protein and the fat markets is, is that we see dietary habits changing as the, there's more wealth within those within those markets we will see a shift and, and i think rice is a good example to show where you'll see some impact on the on the despite the population growing in the world you'll see the appetite for rice drop away a little bit but if you're talking about grains per se, remember we're talking about the wheats and, and uh, canola that we produce here. Yep. They're going into higher level foods anyway. Mm. And so more bread, more pastas, you know, the sort of, I mean, if, the best way to look at it is what is the dining that we do? And, and we consume uh, those uh, grains at higher, at, at, at higher levels in the food chain and we consume more red meats. Now that's what the objective of a successful person in the third world is to say, that's what I wanna be doing as well. So again, we, we, without beating around the bush, obviously China is, has had a major impact, I suppose mainly because it's a huge population that's had good economic growth. Would that that'd be, that'd be fair? Exactly, and, and the interesting thing is that it is, it is very recent. If you look at red meat, exports into China. If you go back past 2011, which is not even 10 years ago, they didn't figure on the radar at all. They were way down the list of countries that we exported to. In January of this year, I think for a brief period, they were our number one lamb export market. So they've, they've come with a hell of a rush. Yeah. And that's partly explained by the, um, by the increase in wealth. But it's there are other factors. I mean, the level of communication in the world now means that people pick up on what's happening in other societies and, and you know, it becomes an aspirational thing for people in, who are coming out of developing, you know, third world to developed world to first world status. The aspiration of what you want to be like is very clear. You know that, um, you know what's going on in the rest of the world. And the other factor, of course, um, so, so all this theory has been proven in the past where countries like Singapore and Korea and Taiwan came into those areas, but they weren't massive populations. We're mm -hmm. now talking about countries 
with massive populations becoming wealthy. And that gives you a, a whole new perspective of what sort of value people will place on these uh, aspirational type foods, if you like. So, so if we look at Australia in the, in the, I suppose, in the export market, the amount of amount of, of, of meat that we export into into those countries versus what they consume domestically, it, it wouldn't be very much, would it? I mean, we're not we're not a big player in the, the scheme of things from that that from a Chinese perspective. No, not at all, and and that's a, that's a really good point. So that means that your marketing of the product is not to the masses; it's to the discerning consumer. And the discerning consumer needs to have the ability to pay for it for a start. They need to understand the value. They need to, under, and, and it's interesting, MLA have got, have got a really good data set of what's important. And, and the important things to the Chinese red meat consumer are things like animal welfare, clean green, food safe. Down at the bottom end of the, um, of the spectrum, interestingly, is price. So, okay. and that's because we're talking about a very small demographic of a large population who have the ability to do that. There's one other thing that's played into our hands a little bit, and that is that in Asia, um, food safety is actually associated with frozen food. So a lot of fresh food, is especially meat, is considered to be slightly risky. Whereas in Australia here, we would say it's safe because of our, you know, our, our cool stores are regulated and you know the meat in in asia in the past that hasn't been the case and so the fresh markets are seen as being slightly risky for health and, and safety whereas a frozen market is considered to be you know much safer and that plays into our it's one of the reasons why we're seeing a change in the in the price movements over the season whereas we would see certain times of the year when we had a flood of lamb onto the market the price would collapse Whereas now, because that lamb and mutton can go into frozen product, processors can just ramp up their productivity, knowing that they've got a ready market for it, not necessarily in the traditional fresh market that we would see on our, our stores. So does is COVID played into that? I mean, because of how we've handled, other than Victoria, I should add, we seem to have handled it pretty well. Even yeah. Victoria is not too bad compared to the rest of the world, but that, that ability to, that we can control those type of outbreaks? Yeah. Look, COVID, for, for people who analyse markets, COVID is a gift and a curse. I mean, on the one hand, it's given us that much to talk about. You know, the, the, you know, there's something new almost every day. The curse of it all is, though, is that what does it all mean? I mean, yeah. it's very difficult to understand what it means. So at a very base level, the people's, people are still eating food at mm. a very base level, but they're actually eating different types of food. So what we've seen is with the restaurants closing, so things like your high value beef cuts, uh, and, and interestingly in the pork industry, the high value pork cuts have struggled to find a home, whereas the low value products have been in more demand. People have, you know, we saw sausages and mince walking out the supermarket doors like no tomorrow, you know, alongside the toilet yep. paper, David. So, yep. um, so that's changed things. And, yeah. and just another point we saw in the US was that the, we, they had a real problem in their abattoirs, a bigger problem than we've ever seen here, where a lot of abattoirs were shut down because they couldn't process, uh, because they couldn't get um, staff and therefore they couldn't process animals. And that meant there was a shortage of meat coming in. So the retail price went through the roof 
and we look at a thing called the cutout, the US cutout beef price, went to record levels. But the on-farm steer price collapsed because you didn't have the demand for the meatworks. All right, that tells us what was happening right at that point. But then you've got to say that's going to flip sometime in the future because those animals haven't gone anywhere. They're waiting to come through the processing channel. And that's their market, isn't it? They don't have that a channel. They're just waiting to put it into the exactly. processing. What we do know is when when product is processed, whether it's whether whatever it is, it actually finds a home, but it finds a home based on the price that you're asking for it. And and so that we, we, we would have seen the cold stores and the freezers empty uh, during that period, but we will see them absolutely fill very quickly because every meat work will be absolutely going at 100% of capacity. Yep. So there's a lot of things at play in the short term. So we've yep. gone from talking about long term to short term very quickly. I know. Because <laughs> yeah. the interesting thing, and, I, and with COVID taking all the headlines, this thing called African swine flu has seemed to has fallen off the fallen off the radar. Yet, yeah, I'm just interested in your take on on African swine flu, what it's done to China. African swine flu, fever. fever. Don't confuse it with the flu. Oh, the sorry. Flu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Swine flu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, look, that's a really good point to bring in at this point in the conversation, Dave, because that deficit in red meat protein hasn't changed despite what's happened with everything else. And the deficit is absolutely significant. We're talking 20% of the world's red meat protein was slaughtered and put in a pit. Yeah. I mean, yep. it is just mind boggling. Now, there's a few things that will be happening. Firstly, the Chinese agricultural industry will be going at 100 miles an hour to replace that, but you can't do it overnight. There will also be some changes that will happen. One of the things that will happen is that there will be less pigs in backyards. So pre-African swine fever, 80% of the pigs in China were in backyards and 20% were in serious piggeries. Yeah. That will flip on its head because they won't let... That, that backyard piggery is where the disease risk is. There's very little disease risk in a sophisticated piggery. There's not the exchange of... of um, of pigs and, and, the, and the spread of disease is, is much more um, under control. So, and, and we also know that in China, they can do things very quickly. I mean, they build a hospital in three days or something. So <laughs> yep. you know, we shouldn't underestimate that that will happen very quickly. And um, for those who have studied pigs, they know that, uh, you know, the gestation period of a pig is three months, three weeks, three days. And, you know, pigs can have 20 to 25 piglets per sow per year. So, it, it will recover and there's a real appetite for it to recover, pardon the pun. Yeah, so, but it, is there much of a substitution effect between that and our red meat exports into China or are we talking about two different markets? We're, we're, there is some substitution, but it's not to the extent that would fill the gap. So mm -hmm. what will happen is there'll be people in China going without protein, meat protein. Mm. You just won't be able to get it. Now, and, and our beef, you know, I think if we if we exported 100% of our beef product, we supply three days of protein demand in China. Three days. So, and if we did the whole lot of the pigs, it's less than one day in Australia. So, it's not possible to to replace that. However, yeah. people keep eating, and as we know, they don't sit there waiting for the pigs to grow, but they won't be able to get um, meat proteins to the extent. That said. The, you know, the, we know the Chinese economy 
you know, it has, has had a hiccup and it's slowed down a bit, but it's still growing at rates that every other economy in the world would just die for. Yeah, yeah. So keeping on, on the world's sphere, I suppose, what about competition? What about supply competition? What, what's out there that, that, that as an Australian, we, should, we need to keep an eye on? Yeah, look, there is competition for everything, of course, and it usually gets reflected in price. So we need to look at where Australian, Australian beef and lamb, our red meats, competes in a bit of privileged position. And that privileged position means that we get paid more for our product than most other countries get for theirs. So, you know, the biggest exporter of cow beef, if you like, is India. Yeah. But they don't compete in the same markets as us. And, and we wouldn't want to be competing in those markets. So the countries that compete with us uh, in, in lamb is New Zealand and sheep meats. And in the US, it's pretty much, uh, sorry, in beef, it's pretty much the US. Now, everybody says, you know, there's a big cow herd in, in South America, and that's true. But there's a big problem down there in that if they are to compete and, and get the same sort of prices that, that Australians get, then their local population starts riding because their beef prices have gone up. So the government sort of manipulates that to some degree yeah, yeah. by putting tariffs on their exports, which then makes them you know, less competitive. And there's also the issue of, of, of health uh, regulations and, and that's not as stable as, as, as what we've got here. In fact, there isn't another country in the world that has the sort of biosecurity and, um, and health statuses that we have. And that's something that we, as Australians, take a little bit for granted, yes. but we shouldn't. We yeah. shouldn't at all. We should be emphasising that standard and we should be continually raising the bar because what it's doing is making more difficult for people to compete with us remembering that we're not looking to provide red meat protein to the masses. We're just looking to provide to that discerning customer who's got the ability to pay for it. And the Kiwis in the sheep market, I suppose what's happened recently or not recently over the last 10, 20 years is, is a lot of that country's gone into dairy. Is that exactly. is that and, trend still and, happening? Yeah, D dairy is one hands down and, and it's continuing to, you know, the productivity that, that the New Zealand dairy farmers have is just still gobbling up sheep properties. And even, even though we're now seeing very, very good prices for lamb and mutton, if, if a property changed hands, David, in the last 20 years and turned into a dairy farm down there, the investment and the infrastructure that goes in to make it a viable dairy farm is going to mean you're not going to suddenly go back and, yep. and, and you know, clean out the wool shed and run a few crossbred ewes again. It's hard to do a reconversion, is it? It doesn't happen. That's yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So looking at trade trade issues around around the world where we're talking about free trade agreements where Boris is, is throwing Tim Tams around the place and obviously we're also looking at a, a free trade agreement with with the EU it's a separate issue is there anything on the horizon there that we should be keeping our eyes on look I think we should be interested in what's happening there and we're fortunate again I mean this, this sounds like a bit of a broken record but we're fortunate again that we're likely to benefit from the UK going out of EU because now we can we can talk to both and remembering that, you know, their appetite for, for the type of food we produce is quite strong, that, that meat product. And, uh, you know, New Zealand supplies, or did supply lamb into there uh, and had a bit of a free run with the EU. But um, that's all up on the, on the table now. And, and the other part of it is that um, New Zealand's not going to be able to continue to supply uh, the sort of numbers that they have. It's going to have to be picked up by Australia. And... What that's going to mean is that, well, 
if you look at it, Australia has a much bigger domestic market for our lamb and, and beef and sheep meats than New Zealand does. But it's going to mean that the, this export demand is going to continue to try and take product away from our domestic customers. And that comes back to price. You know, the price is mm. going to be driven by export demand. And we will continue to see, I think, a decline in domestic consumption, not solely because we're trying to eat less meat, but it'll just be too expensive. Yeah, yeah. What about the Middle East? Well, I think that's a good, yeah, what about the Middle East? You've got, you've got a solution for that, have you? <laughs> um, <laughs> I wouldn't be standing here talking to you, mate. Yeah, exactly. Look, the, the Middle East is a, is a really good outlet, for, especially for our sheep meats. But I think one of the things we should recognise right here is that the diversity of our markets is, is absolutely providing value to our farmers. So we have a market for live sheep. We have a market for little lambs. We have a market for trade lambs. We have a market for uh, heavyweight lambs. We have a market for grain-fed beef. We have a market for grass-fed beef. A lot of them are different markets. And, and, yeah. and somehow we've been able to, you know, walk and chew gum and talk to a lot of different people over the period. Maybe it's not because we're so smart, but maybe it's because our product, you know, causes that demand. And so yes. when, when countries like China start to say, oh, we're going to give you a belt over the years and we're going to ban four meatworks in Queensland, you say, oh, gee, that's, you know, that's a bit of a hiccup. And then the next month, our beef exports to China are up on the previous month. So how does that work? The interesting thing there too, mate, is, is, is I understand that people who were supplying those uh, abattoirs were that the price sheets came out and uh, that actually rose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, and that's because you know, there's not, we're not completely relying on one market. Yeah. You know, while yeah. China might like to think they're the big boys, uh, in terms of demand for, for food protein out of Australia, they're just one of, you know, the top four or five. I saw a good uh, chart, and I don't know if it was one of yours, but it showed how the uh, a market... If it was a good one, it would have been one of ours, David. Yeah, absolutely. A diversification of a, a beef market over the last yeah. 10, 15, 20 years, you know, and how that, that's diversified um, to what it was then so you know you because you always worry about i i always thought china had a, a larger share of our market it's still substantial but certainly not the end of the world one other point on that is and i mentioned before that the china demand for our red meat has come only in the last 10 years it's come at a time when we've had good supply because of our drought you know we've we've slaughtered a lot of stock but yep. we've also it hasn't been cheap meat so they've come into a market looking for our product when they've had to pay good solid prices. You know, the, the price translating back to the farm gate has been pretty good. If you can if you compare that with what happened in the wool industry, when China became the dominant player, it was when wool was worth next to nothing. We had a you know two million bales in the stockpile. Um, they purchased a lot of and, and we had a um, we had a currency that um, you know was was rock bottom. Yeah. And so they purchased a lot of wool at very, very low prices when they began to become a significant player. And so two things happened there. One is they increased their production with, with their cheap processing and, and buying our, our wool. Um, but they also got used to paying low prices. And so it took years to drag them up, drag the price up. And, and it actually took a collapse in supply, which we're seeing right now in the wool industry, 
for the price mm. to get to the levels that we saw last year. And, and of course, what we're seeing this year is another story, but longer term, we're at very high levels. So, you know, I think, I think that's the positive on the meat story. And that will translate back into the future, David, of what farmers are deciding to do with their sheep and cattle uh, and, and their, their grazing enterprises. That'll be driving their decision-making. So well, let's park that for a minute. And there's a, some domestic fundamentals we might want to talk about, but but let's go to wool because seriously, I was sitting down with a farmer uh, on Saturday night, having, having a, a red, and he said, what do you think wool price is going to do? And I don't think in my life have I, have I been more unsure of what wool's going to do than, than when he asked me that question. Now, maybe I'm, I've, I've lost track, but it just seems to be very hard to read at the moment. Robert, uh, other than not good. I think in the short term, the, the, the real impact, there, there's been three reasons why the price has come off, I think. There's been the, the, first of all, high prices are a good cure for high prices. And we had very high <laughs> prices of wool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that's always a time when you're going to see prices come back a little bit. But the second thing was uh, COVID-19 impact in China and, and mills just shut. I mean, we know yep. talking to exporters, they just couldn't even, no one would answer the phone. Now that corrected itself, that certainly pulled the market back, but that problem readjusted in China fairly quickly. They, they got back on, you know, they got back processing. But what happened then was when those processors were ringing up their customers in Paris and London and New York, there's no one on the end of the phone there. So we've had this cascading problem coming back down the chain to the auctions. Now, that said, we're also at a record low amount of wool being sold, I think. And even in the short term, uh, April, I can remember the April figures, we sold half the amount of wool in April 20 as what we sold in April 19. Whew. So there is, a, there is a vacuum out there in the production pipeline. If we accept that eventually after COVID-19, there will be some sort of you know, normality of consumption, and, and retail activity, then there's a real vacuum out there which has to be filled you know, at some stage. So in the short term, I don't think it's a problem. In the longer term, you can't continue to decline your supply and expect your customers to remain. They've got to go somewhere else. The other issue surprised me that there was so much discussion of when we, when we took some students to China was when, and we visited one of the mills was around the, the need for them to get South African wool because they couldn't get enough non-mules wool. Is that, was that just, were they just saying it for our sake or is, is this, this trend towards non-mules wool a, a something that we should be aware of? No, I think, I think the only people who aren't really taking it seriously are people in Australia, this, this non-mules issue. And, okay, yep. And um, look, you know, there's a whole lot of, there's a whole new podcast in talking about that, David, and you'll have to get someone else to talk about that because I can see that yep. you're hiding <laughs> nothing. But, but the reality is that we have, we, we have to accept that in the end, the consumer will dictate. So you tell me where you can go anywhere in the world and show a consumer what we do to a sheep in terms of mulesing and try and explain that that's for the sheep's good. Um, and that's the problem. And, and, it's okay when nobody says anything, but the problem is when you've got activists who are prepared to go out there and, and make a feature of it, then you have to address it. And, you know, I, uh, the, the only thing I'll say on this is that in any business, any organization, you look at risk. 
if you look at what you know, the society is doing, that risk has been obvious for a long time. Yeah. So just while, given that we've, I've, I've taken to Millsing, let's, uh, one thing I, I remiss of me is, 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 is not to talk about um, live exports out of, especially cattle live exports, because again, are the dynamics in that market different to what we've been talking about about the beef industry already? Uh, yes, they are. The, the dynamics of, a, of the live export of cattle out of the North is, is 100% driven by demand. The demand mm. for those, those live cattle is coming from the, the populations in those countries. And I know we did, we did a, an article looking at the amount of households that have electricity in Indonesia. And it's, and it's a huge percentage that don't. So those households, if they're going to have red meat protein, have to buy it fresh in the morning. And to have it fresh, you have to have a live animal slaughtered that, yeah. that day. And so when, when you, and, and I know it's a problem for the local Indonesian farmers because they'd rather that Australian cattle weren't coming in, which pushes up their prices. But of course, the vast population really appreciates that. So that's a trade that's, that I think has got a long-term future. And, and if you think about the way it works, it, it fits really nicely into a northern Australian cattle yes. enterprise. Yeah. Just on live export, though, the sheep one is different. And, and the sheep one, I think, will be driven by supply. So it's going to become increasingly difficult for the traditional live export destinations to source live sheep out of Australia and to source them in any numbers and to so and not have to pay, you know, above world price, if you like, because we have this we're going into a period where we will have a record low mutton slaughter, but at the same time, we've developed mutton markets at, at, on the back of the drought, on, well, on the drought yeah. side that the demanding mutton. I, I sold some cull ewes the other day, Robert, for um, I think we averaged $160 a head mm. for cull weathers. Well, I can remember visiting a... I can remember visiting a farmer in New Zealand and he'd sold his lambs, this is three years ago, I think, and averaged $160. And then he sold his, his cull ewes and, and, and averaged almost the same money. And he said, don't these people realise that lambs are much better product? Well, that's a, that's a pretty um, entrenched way of looking at it because the mutton product, when you think about some of the Asian cooking styles, the mutton yeah. product is probably a better product. I mean, yeah. you, can, you can cook it as long as you like, You'll end up with flavour, you'll end up with protein, and you'll still have a bit of texture left at the end of it. Well, that's probably perfect for what they're trying to do. So we need, so that demand is going to, I guess it's going to have us look at mutton and lamb markets in a different light in the future. So, and does that, from, from a, a merino farming operation, does that then, we've got to think about the dynamics between fibre and protein about on the beast that we're producing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Although I would qualify it, and, and as you would know, I've, my whole career has been built around a, an observation of the wool market. Yeah. There's, there have only been short periods of time where the, the fibre diameter has been more important than the amount of wool you cut and the amount of meat you can produce. And what happens is the wool industry got distracted by saying, we need to get you know, finer and finer wool. Yeah. Um, whereas... And, and that's fine if you and, and if you're talking to a uh, high-level um, wool processor, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. But if you're talking to a farmer in terms of what generates his income, mm. um, 
that that's only, as I say, only for short periods of history is where the micron or the cents per kilo high price has been more important than the volume of wool and the and the surplus sheep sales. Yeah. And in the future, based on what we're saying with protein demand, that's less likely to happen in the future. Yeah, yeah. So I think just to, to finish up, because I, I think it's a really important thing that you said to me a couple of months ago is, is on if we look at the supply side domestically in Australia, I think you said both our, our flock and our herd numbers are at rates that we haven't, at levels that we haven't seen since uh, last, or last century, I should go, the century before with regards to uh, herd numbers. Yeah. Well, well, herd numbers, cattle numbers are, aren't quite that dire. I mean, they're at 30-year lows, I think. Okay. Yep. But, uh, but sheep numbers are at 100-year lows. And, yep. and, and the challenge will be, I mean, even if we see the, we've seen good prices now for, well, we saw, we've seen three years of very good wool prices and very good sheep and, uh, and lamb prices, and yet the flock is still declined. Now, we know that is part because of the um, drought. And that's not such a bad thing, providing it, the flock numbers recover after the drought. And it's difficult to see that happening because if you try and, 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 and test it out and say, well, how is someone going to increase their, going from being a drought affected property to being back to what the sheep numbers were, you know, 10 years ago, you know, almost impossible to go and buy them, mm. very slow to rebreed them. And in fact, there are other things that you probably would do to generate income. Uh, for example, you'd plant a wheat crop. Yep. And get, you know, so all those things are conspiring to tell us that the recovery in, in sheep numbers, despite the price, doesn't matter what the price goes to, is going to be very difficult. And that means that if somebody's in got sheep, they're going to be in a very fortunate position. Mm. Mm. Robert, I think that's probably a good place to, to finish part one. I think what I'd like to do is just say, get you back next week and just just think about what those trends we've talked about and then maybe put some some numbers around what we think that both means from a, uh, a long-term price forecasting and a short-term price forecasting. And also think about some of the things that we can manage our prices with or how we should be thinking about what is a good price and what is a bad price. That'd be okay by you? That's fine. Thanks, David. Thanks, Rob. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's Marcus Ag Talk podcast. Please, any feedback on the series would be greatly appreciated. You can either leave a message on this site or email me at cornish at marcusoldham.vic.edu.au. Stay tuned to next week's podcast as we continue to explore farm management from an Australian perspective. <laughs>